0: Each month, the Security Ledger podcast informs and entertains an audience of thousands of information technology and cybersecurity professionals. If that sounds like an audience your company is trying to reach, consider becoming a Security Ledger podcast sponsor. We offer per-episode sponsorships of our regular podcast, which features news, analysis, and discussion of the most important security topics of the day, or you can commission a custom podcast that highlights your executives, researchers, and subject matter experts. To learn more, point your browser to securityledger.com slash sponsor. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this episode of the podcast, number 249.
1: COVID really lit the light on what, what how fragile some of the supply chains are across the industry, not just semiconductor, but even the, the metal that wraps the servers. And having available access and domestic capability both, both commercial and defense uses. And so CHIPS Act is the game changer as far as really driving domestic foundry, domestic fabrication, domestic packaging for the broader semiconductor technology industry. Obviously, Intel is a key player there.
0: In August 2022, President Biden signed into law the CHIPS and Science Act. One of the biggest federal investments in research and development in recent memory. Bill includes a $52.7 billion appropriation over five years to fund grants, loans, loan guarantees, and other programs to incentivize the semiconductor industry to move more manufacturing to the United States. That includes tax credits to spur the construction of semiconductor fabrication plants in the U.S., as well as limits on the ability of chip makers to expand operations in China. The CHIPS Act is expected to spur investment in the U.S. semiconductor industry, which has long taken a backseat to countries like Taiwan, where most of the world's advanced semiconductors are manufactured. It's been a boon for companies like Intel, the U.S.'s most recognized semiconductor maker. But what about the larger supply chain issues affecting U.S. industry and the U.S. government, including the software supply chain? How are the CHIPS Act and other federal initiatives, like President Biden's cyber executive order, changing the way that the federal government is looking at and procuring software, hardware, and services from its own suppliers. To help answer those questions, we invited Steve Oren into the studio to talk. Steve is the federal CTO and senior principal engineer for Intel, a job that has him representing all of Intel's technologies and capabilities to the federal government, as well as to the broader public sector. In this conversation, Steve and I talk about Intel's extensive work as a supplier of software, hardware, and services to Uncle Sam, and about some of the initiatives Intel is working on from confidential computing to supply chain security. To start off, I asked Steve to describe his responsibilities as Intel's federal CTO.
1: So I'm Steve Orrin, I'm the federal CTO and senior principal engineer for Intel Corporation. And in that role, I basically represent all of Intel's technologies and capabilities to the federal government and the broader public sector ecosystem. So that's civilian, military intelligence, the large system integrators, The federal OEMs and cloud providers really help them to figure out how to adopt and use commercial Intel technologies to advance mission and enterprise needs. And so in some respects, I translate Intel technology into government requirements and mission requirements. And then the other half of my job is to turn around and translate government requirements back into Intel features and needs, uh, as well as the ability to do custom capabilities in order to advance the federal government's use cases, as they have very specific requirements, whether it be on scale, on security, or in the tactical domain. And so really, I've become that focal point for the technology innovation that's working with the federal government. My background is in cybersecurity, having done multiple security startups throughout the 90s and 2000s, and I ran security pathfinding for Intel for about nine years prior to taking on the federal role.
0: So Intel's relationship with the federal government, pretty sleepy job really, not a whole lot of stuff going on there.
1: It's fascinating. There's <laughs> so much going on in the federal government.
0: <laughs> and yes.
1: It it always keeps you on your toes. Biggest technology buyer in the world, as, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And the scale that you find in the federal government is really unique. The VA, the largest healthcare provider in the world, as well as the largest insurer in the Medicaid, Medicare. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the interesting things that I've always found about working with the federal marketplace and the federal government is you can find every possible vertical that you'd find anywhere else in the federal government. You want to talk finance and credit card fraud. You have CMS, you have IRS, you want to talk healthcare, obviously the VA. You want to talk about smart cities and that infrastructure you have smart bases literally everything you'd ever want to do anywhere else you're going to find it in the government and you're going to find it at a huge scale. So if you can solve it for the government, financial services, healthcare, retail,
0: manufacturing, you've got those in the bag. I think when folks think about Intel as a supplier to the federal government, their assumption may be like Intel chips are in stuff that the federal government buys. And maybe in the defense context, there are more direct. They need specialized types of chips for specialized types of weapons or something like that. It's actually a much broader relationship than that. So talk about what are some of the... talked about translating intel technology for government purposes and also translating government mandates for intel what types of stuff do you get dragged into so that's a really good
1: question paul and once starting out with one assumption most people know intel for the chips and that is a lot of what we do is build chips that go into quite literally everything from yeah. the edge to the cloud the network and everything in between But Intel is actually so much more a part of the platform. Other components like FPGAs and GPUs, other hardware parts, as well as a lot of the software that you take advantage of, whether you're running commercial products or open source, was either developed by or optimized by Intel engineers. And so we actually have one of the larger in development organizations globally working on developing software. So when we look at, to your question of how do we help the government, when we look at things like containers in a cloud-based architecture, or being able to do end-to-end, so edge sensors to back-end cloud infrastructure across a dynamic uh, network environment, we have hardware, software, and and ecosystem partners at each stage of that. So a lot of it is helping them to adopt the best parts of technology and to integrate it into their existing infrastructure. So we'll do a lot of advisory role because in most cases, the government, and really for that matter, most industry doesn't buy direct from Intel. They don't go buy it from intel.com, they go to Dell or HP, or they get their services from Amazon or Azure or Google. And so in that respect, we play a lot more of an advisory role where we help them pick the right technology to meet their needs. But also we're on the forefront of advancing innovation. So the next generation of computing capabilities. And one example right now that's really hot is confidential computing, which is the ability within the cloud or even in a bare metal system, to protect the data in the application, even from physical adversaries or from rogue admins mm-hmm. and from other tenants with hardware-enforced security. And we're seeing this become pervasive in the cloud architecture, helping the government figure out not only how to adopt and scale it in their specialized environments, but also figuring out what mission applications need and how will you transition something that may have been designed 10 years ago and now just made it to the cloud. How do we move it into a confidential computing container? And so we'll work closely with them to figure out both the architectural needs as well as what is the right ecosystem partners. Should they go an open source route with something like Grameen to do a wrapper? Should they buy a product from one of the various vendors that are doing confidential computing services? Helping them adopt the right technology is a lot of what we do. And in some really fun cases, we actually get to be able to do direct innovations. Let's jointly figure out the right solution together. To help scale it within that enterprise environment. And so a lot of times it's not just the conversations. We actually can get engineers on task to
0: go build a customized prototype to be able to show the art of the possible there. When you're interacting, when you're talking about these cross-government initiatives, who are you interfacing with? Who are you talking to? And is there a decider ultimately in terms of shaping or directing government acquisitions, technology investments, and so on?
1: So Paul, it's very interesting. And you're right. The federal government doesn't operate like a bank where there's one CIO and he or she makes the call. They have the budget. Maybe there's one CISO who creates the requirements at the same time. Many cooks in the kitchen. Many cooks in the kitchen. But it really comes down to is understanding, first and foremost, there's sort of two major buckets in the federal, especially in the DOD space. And many of the agencies, even on the civilian side, is there's the mission area and the enterprise area. So the enterprise area is what you would typically expect from a corporate entity. Email, communications, being storage, database, enterprise applications, HR, the stuff that runs the business side of the operation, whether that be communication out to the field, making sure you can get onto your system. So all of that kind of work is typically housed in a CIO-like office, and there'll be a macro like DISA under DOD, the Defense Information uh, Security Agency will own the architecture, and then the individual services will have their CIO organization that will manage the enterprise side. The other side of the camp is the mission. And that's honestly where a lot more of the activity and the customization and a lot of those silos are because, you know, what you need to do for a joint strike fighter is different, what you need to do for a radar station, which is different from a ship, as well as different from what you would do on, on, on shore at a base. And so you'll have very specific requirements and technology architectures for those mission needs. And so, you, in that environment, you're talking to the program leads, the tech directors, the the SES, the civilian executive that is in charge of the program, and they're the ones who actually have the budget. So when you think about, you know, Joint Strike Fighter as an example, that's owned by the by a particular program office that's driving right. the budget and the requirements, and that you want to be talking to their architectural leads and technical directors. There's gonna there's a blurred line there because a lot of times the things you want to do at a particular location are managed by or hosted by enterprise, but then deployed by mission. So you talk to both sides. You want to make sure they're both working together. Um, but in the government, you definitely go where the money is because they're the ones who ultimately have the say. The other thing to keep in mind is that the oftentimes you think, well, I'm going to go to who's currently spending dollars. The key thing in government is to remember that when the, by the time they're spending the dollars and they're buying or deploying things, the des- you know that's already a complete design. There's opportunities for future refreshes But really the design for things that are getting deployed happens years in advance. And so it's getting there early and helping them understand what's coming. So when they're ready to deploy, they're ready with the right technology at that right time. So it's a very different sales motion or in in my case, more of an advisory
0: motion, a technology insertion motion. You need to be a little bit of a futurist in some ways. You're thinking not just about what things are today, but actually where we're going to be four or five years from now when the gears actually start turning on this. Absolutely. And then realizing that some of these platforms
1: exist for 20 years beyond. We're still flying F-22s. And so
0: they have a long life. Yes. Ukraine has really brought all of that to the fore, right? (laughs) We've got hardware and software out there that's 20 or 30 years old that is still pretty important. (laughs) And still operating. And still operating. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I think that, that has really, and I've been covering cybersecurity for a couple decades now, and obviously writing about it in the federal context. But one of the things that strikes me that has really changed in the last five or six years is this shift to talking about software supply chain, sort of shift left in terms of the focus in cybersecurity. For many years, it was really just focus on keeping bad guys off of government, military and intelligence networks with solar winds right that whole conversation changed and i think it was a real awakening obviously supply chain security both on the hardware and software side is probably something that is not a new topic to a company like intel how do you see that evolution in the conversation in the government space and then what is your message really to your federal partners and also back to intel on what changes need to happen what needs to get done yeah, and Paul,
1: you hit on it right there. Solar Winds was a wake-up call for the industry and for the government on the what could happen, and then we shortly thereafter Log4j just put the nail in the coffin on being able to keep your head in the sand on supply chain security. It
0: should but, have been Heartbleed, but <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sometimes you need a few
1: reminders. <laughs> the good news is that it wasn't for the folks on the government security side. They've been talking about supply chain security and. Looking at it for some time, the idea of supply chain is not new. There's long, long history of supply chain risk management. The challenge had been is that a lot of it had been mostly focused on things—not even the chips side of it, but the physical. Where did the wing come from? Where did those the rubber for those tires come from? So, looking at supply chain, and a lot of it was also availability, sustainability, making sure it was the right quality. So, if you think about even the early examples of supply chain in the space race, knowing that you're getting that, that screw from the right vendor so that it doesn't break on those high. Uh, and there were ex- big examples of faulty equipment that was sourced from il- illegitimate sources because they didn't test it to the right or they didn't use the right material. So the idea of supply chain isn't new. What was new is the fo- hyper-focus on software and, on the, and following that microelectronics and the whole technology uh, supply chain. And so that right. raised the bar for the tech industry to come along for the ride that the other industries have been thinking about. But it also changed how the acquisition. So you think about acquisitions and what you would be buying. It was you buy the product, you deploy it, and then you manage its security. You didn't really ask the really hard questions of the vendors what's in the box? That never was a question that was part of the acquisition process. It was, I'll look and see if there were some risks out there before, or if I've seen some known good practices, and I'll implement those on acquisition. But the switch, besides requiring stronger visibility, was there's a push now to change the acquisition rules so that supply chain risk management is one of the first steps and the vendor having to adhere to some requirements is part of contract language. And it really comes down to you got to put your money where your mouth is. And so that's what the government's doing in the executive order and the cybersecurity memorandums is laying out the plan, but also in telling ONB and telling DOD acquisitions, there needs to be a change to the process for buying things and starting with software. And it's so what we've seen is this really strong, and if you think about how long it normally takes standards to happen, the fact that we're looking at a fairly mature looking SBOM being worked on right now and the time frame we're talking about is a rapid move considering how long it normally takes standards to come about. The government has basically said SBOM is going to be, or something close with these requirements is going to be the requirement. And it's going to be incumbent on the industry that sells to the government, and relies on government funding to implement that. And what's at right. the heart of SBOM? It's this notion of visibility. That's what they're really asking for. Everyone gets wrapped up in the standard, but at the heart of it is that you can't secure what you don't know. Right. And the, I think it's important to know that the idea isn't that the government wants to know all your parts so they can replicate your product. But at the end of the day, if I know what you have in the product, I'm taking log4j as an example. Right. If I know that your product has log4j, the second that a log4j 2.0 vulnerability is disclosed, I may not be able to patch it today because I'm still waiting for the vendors to do their job to patch it, which is normal, but I can immediately implement mitigating controls. I can do product-specific monitoring. I can set my sensors to 11 for that period of time to be able to mitigate that risk, at least partially, until a patch is available because I have a known vulnerability that I'm able to identify And that's the key. The key is not that I'm going to not buy that product anymore. The key is I'm going to be able to close that horrible window of exposure while the normal good process of validating and testing the patch and getting it deployed happens. And that's the aha of what SBOM really brings to the table. The challenge, of course, is that this kind of architecture is going to, you don't want to fall into the trap of there's a new artifact, you get it shipped with the product, and then somebody does a checkbox. Yep, we got the SBOM and nothing else gets done because then no value is extracted. So it's sort there's, of, right,
0: the checkbox security problem, right? Whether PCI or something else. Anytime you're boiling things down till you have to do A, B, C, and D, in some ways you're disincentivizing people to look beyond A, B, C, and D,
1: right? Exactly. And that's
0: why the government yeah. took an initiative
1: to publish guidance for both the developer community that's building products. adhere to SBOM, but also for the consumer, not because we're like an individual, but the organization or the customer of that software of how to operationalize SBOM. And so we're seeing documentation like from ESF and from NIST on not just the developer and supplier side, but also on the IT management side. Here's what you do when this artifact shows up. Here's how you integrate it into your asset management process, your vulnerability management and risk management processes. And here's what IT needs to do every update, every upgrade. That guidance is really at the heart of how do we actually get value out of this work that we're all doing. Okay, so
0: you raise a lot of really interesting points. A lot of this comes out, a lot of the guidance comes out of the President Biden's executive order, May 2021. What of the conversations there at Intel on um, how to comply with these new requirements, what role SBOM is going to play, how you are going to operationalize that across such a huge organization software, as you said, one of the largest software Makers in the world. And then, of course, you know, your hardware business as well. But where are things right now with it? I know just from reading, particularly in the sort of Gov tech press, that a lot of vendors are pushing back against this self attestation thing and saying, hold on, before we self attest, we don't want to get hung out to dry for this. Give us some more guidance, give us some more wiggle room around attesting to the security of our supply chain, and then maybe we'll feel more comfortable doing it. So, where I'm sure these are conversations Intel's having? Where do things stand?
1: So it's a really good question. And Intel, along with the rest of the industry, is looking to make sure that we are in compliance with government requirements when they become mandated and are working directly with both government and our peers, not just the ones that are our partners and our suppliers, but the broader ecosystem. Our competitors are all in the same boat of trying to make sure we provide the right consistent capability to the federal government because if Broadcom and Intel and NVIDIA and AMD all do a different thing, it doesn't help anybody. So we're working together as an ecosystem to the federal government to make sure, number one, that the requirements they put forth actually are achievable because there's how many times have we seen policies don't actually equal technology to the self station is a good example. Make sure they're very clear on what they're asking for. A lot of times what they the intent of what they want is something that where the customer, the supplier saying, here's what's in the what I've done for this particular software. When you say the word self-attestation a lot of times that gets blown up into a lot bigger thing i'm willing to put my badge on the line for your security which no one right. can do because security is a constantly evolving thing so a right. lot of it comes down to understanding the terms that are used to making sure that the liabilities and the regulations map to what you actually will get because there's no piece of paper you're going to get from a vendor that's going to say you're 100 percent secure or this product will never have a vulnerability and that's making sure that those requirements filter to the very macro high level. Because at the end of the day, a procurement requirement isn't going to go into the gory details of the intent. They're going to say you should have a self-station. So it's a lot of are getting the terminology right so that everyone's in agreement. The other, a lot of the other, is making sure the understanding of what needs to be in the S bomb it's clear you need to have your dependencies, but whatever your dependence dependencies, how far down the rabbit hole mm-hmm. yes, is needs to be defined. And also it, where it gets to be really interesting is so who's responsible? I'll give you an example. Let's say I've, I'm using a software, an open source tool. So I reference that and that open source tool uses three other open source tools as dependencies. Am I responsible for identifying those or can I rely on the open source tools SBOM So that sort of, again, it's not just the rabbit hole, but the permutations down that rabbit hole is something that we're still figuring out Where do who's responsible for it. The information is there. And this is one of the things when I first brought up and a couple other folks that have been involved in this brought up the idea of S-Bomb Dentel a while ago. Number one, the data is all there. So as any mature organization knows what's inside their boxes, yeah. you can
0: go look mm-hmm. at your source repositories. And... Key, key term there is mature organization. But yes, you're right. Yeah. Uh, certainly um, Intel does. Yeah. yes, <laughs> There might um, be some other ones that don't. And I can
1: tell you, having been on the startup side early in my career, you're immature until you're ready to be acquired. And then suddenly you need to know exactly. So a lot of companies are in that stage where they sort of know what's in them. If you're going to sell to the government, you have to be already a certain level of maturity. The challenge isn't knowing it. It's about collecting it and getting into one place where you can actually create a document that comes along for the ride. It's often siloed inside organizations as the developers are building their products. So a lot of it was not technical innovation, but the coordination of collecting the information at proper gates. And so you'll see from Microsoft and Intel and all the big tech players is a statement that they're going to support SBOM at a certain date when the government requirements requires it we're going to work together as an industry to give them something that's not just standard compliant but actually usable and i think that's the other thing is making sure we get the interoperability testing and we figure out how you're going to do parsing hashing all those kind of things have to be worked out and we're, right. we and our peers are all on the consortia and the associations and the
0: standards bodies working together to, to help the government achieve its goals. Because the information is only useful insofar as it's actionable, isn't, in, insofar as you, the people you're handing it off to can say, okay, here's the information we're getting. What do we then, what's our response to it then? Either remediation or patching or what is, what have you. And But one thing that I have noticed on the government side is that there there is a
1: team, there are buried in the information assurance sides of those CIO offices that have the task for supply chain risk management. What's interesting is that they've been elevated in essence by the mandate to be part of the acquisition process. They'll still sit in. So it used to be like there was a threat information feed that they're making sure that that's legitimate software from a legitimate vendor Supply chain risk management now becomes a much more important part. And so it's those folks who are more actively involved now in this SBOM creation and working with the industry on the guidance, because they're the, going to be the receiving end of that ultimately. So the acquisition person will get the document and they're going to just hand it right over and say, hey, supply chain risk management, tell me about this. Is this good? As the first step. And then that will get passed on to IT to operationalize it. At, and so I think that's that's part of what we're seeing inside the government is a real strong focus on getting those teams ready to rock and roll when this happens, because procurement by itself is contracts. Yeah. The tech, the risk management side is really the part that's going to do that upfront
0: analysis. Obviously, as we said, many cooks in the kitchen in the federal government IT space. And then every four to eight years, the head chef changes as well. You might go from a Gordon Ramsay to a Jacques Pepin or something like that. And then it might change again. And these executive orders these days... It's much more common that we're seeing policy, quote unquote, in the form of an executive order rather than in past legislation. It's tougher to get things through Congress. The Biden administration's executive order would expire when, well, would need to be continued by the next administration. Um, And yet there's some really big stuff in there. Companies are spending a lot of money complying with it, even though there's no guarantee that it will hang around. So how do you deal with that as a company like Intel that, again, is investing significant resources in this? trying to see the beyond, this is the executive order, but here's the stuff that's likely to stick around and here's the stuff that maybe will go away. So
1: it's it's an interesting question. I think one of the things that was really, what I like about the structure of the 14028, the executive order, is it was more than thou shalt go go off and do good things. This was (laughs) the one plus addendum and the memorandum that came out later. You need to have a plan and it needs to be executed or start executing that plan by a certain date. There needs to be far federal acquisition regulation changes. So What they're doing is not just saying you're going to, we need to aspirationally do something here, but we are going to change the way we do business. And once those changes into the FAR happen, it's not something you quickly just undo with a new executive order. And it's actually good practice. We've seen the agency heads all come online and say, yes, this is something we're going to support. And so the fact that you have the, the parts of DHS and the intelligence committee and DOD collaborating together at the doer level, not just at the executive office. To go make this a reality means that it's gonna be by the time if there's a new administration, it will already be not just a nice piece of paper, but actually in flight. And so I think and that's one of the things that makes this more real than some of the other aspirational, which are still important to do, but there's actually real teeth here as we get this
0: done. What are your big initiatives for twenty twenty three and beyond you being Intel, not you being Steve, although both are fine to throw in there, what are what are the big things you need to check off your list this year? I think anyone who's looking at the micro, the semiconductor
1: industry, Chipsack is the most exciting thing happening right now. It is a game changer for both the government taking a hyper focus on making sure that the domestic supply chain is sound, available, and at scale. And I think it, it really showed the focus that we need to get ahead. COVID really lit the light on what, what, how fragile some of the supply chains are across the industry, not just semiconductor, but even the, the metal that wraps the servers, a lot of that and having available access and domestic capability both both commercial and defense uses. And so Chips Act is the game changer as far as really driving domestic foundry, domestic fabrication, domestic packaging, for the broader semiconductor technology industry. Obviously Intel is a key player there, but so are the memory developers. So are the legacy node developers. There's gonna be a lot of activity over the next year as commerce comes live with Chips Act and other major initiatives really try to reinvigorate the domestic semiconductor industry. And it's the broader, the boards, the systems, it's more than just the chips, although we we like the chips part. So I think that's gonna be one of the biggest focuses as an industry is helping the U.S. government be successful in its endeavor here. Um, I think for personally, one of the things that you know is exciting, you can't, one of my social architects just sent me a list of all the news articles on chat GBT, just to say, here's how busy the news media has been. But I think it's important to see that AI is changing the way we do things. And I think 23, we're gonna to start to see the glitz and glamor move to real world implementations that actually make a difference, whether it be in chatbots to better facilitate healthcare to better intelligence gathering, better sensing. And so I think the application of AI at scale is really some of those things that we're going to see game changer starting in 23 as we move from the really cool proof of concept and pretty uses to to article requests to actually real world business and technical app applications where AI can make a difference in both people's lives in saving them being able to affect mission and enterprise at scale and getting those efficiencies. And the computing power that's, is there, whether it be cloud, high-performance computing, edge computing, to enable those kind of use cases. So that's, for me, where a lot of my day-to-day isn't going to be solving building a factory. That's There's a, people who will do that. I'm trying to see how can I help the government adopt these ne- next-gen technologies securely to be able to actually go from lab to real world.
0: What do you get asked about? What are you hearing when you go up on Capitol Hill or when you talk to people in in D.C., in the departments? What are their questions? What are they asking you about? Really, I think there's three areas I get asked about
1: most. And honestly, top of the list is security. It's on everyone's mind. You can't, every system is targeted. Everybody's being targeted. So I get asked oftentimes, how do I secure my systems better? How do we stop the next data breach, ransomware, supply chain attack? And then, of course, the buzzword dessert is zero trust. So what do I do about this thing? And so a lot of the conversations are helping to educate on what the technologies can do for you today, what the technologies will do for you in the future. And where? And one of the things that's in the last, say, six months that's been really interesting is they're at the point now where they're ready to do something. And so the first question they ask is, okay, where do I start? What's the first thing I do? Because there's too much. You get to read the documents on zero trust architecture and your head blow explodes. What do I, where's the right place to begin? And then once you start implementing, what's the next step? And so, how can we help them as an industry adopt the right technologies in the right order, so they're not trying to boil the ocean? And then supply chain is so that we want to know where the where are parts and pieces and technologies coming from? Uh, how are they being developed? How are they being packaged? And giving them a level of comfort and, like I said, that transparency, that visibility, so they can make proper risk decisions. And that's been something that Intel and our supply chain and our peers have been working on is how do we give them the transparency they need to make better decisions about risk management?
0: Okay, so if you were out talking to a federal CIO or maybe even an enterprise CIO or CSO, they're asking you about the supply chain question, what would your advice be? What would you tell them where to start? So the first place I tell them to start is ask
1: your vendors, Intel included, for transparency. Tell me what's in the box. We have things like SBOM coming in software we're a little bit further out on firmware and even further out on a standard from NIST on hardware. So Intel took an initiative to actually create something called Transparent Supply Chain, which is a certificate artifact for a server or a laptop where we can tell you what's in the box, where the network card came from, where the FPGA or the, or the controllers come from, where the memory comes You basically pull that together with the firmware. That's the key thing. Hardware comes with firmware. And it's not yes. just the BIOS, but every card in your computer has its own firmware. So linking that together. where did that
0: come from? Right.
1: Exactly. And so just being able to give you transparency, what's the bill of materials for the hardware you've got so that you have that information as part of your acquisition. So that's been something we've been pushing and helping to educate. So step one is transparency or visibility. So we give you visibility, they ask for two sides of the same coin. And then from there, it starts to make risk decisions. So plugging that information into your risk management, whether that be acquisition risk upfront Or more importantly, the ongoing operations risk management. So it's not that you're going to not buy a server from a particular vendor, but knowing what's inside the box, you may make different decisions about the controls you put in place or the security, the encryption, the access control you need to do based on that information. And I'm not saying that anyone is bad or good, but it's more information is better in that respect. And a lot of times, especially in this current environment, there's they want to know what's coming from Asia, what's coming from Europe, they want to know what where what region things are coming from, because there is a hypersensitivity right now. I don't when I enlighten them on the fact that it's everything is in everything. There's no way to get a, a Virginia only sourced anything these days. It's then about how do I what do I figure out is the most critical components I care about. You know, the thing that turns on the lead lights on the front of the server, is that important to be sourced only domestically? Right. Maybe not. And those are the kinds right. of the questions. And so it really spurns a conversation, which is really what we want to have. And that's the right. conversation we want to have is help them understand the critical components that actually impact their mission security and mission assurance.
0: Let me final question let me ask you put your kind of future goggles on and we were talking about that you got very good you got them on we we're talking about the Chips Act. on the one hand we've all become very accustomed to thinking of a globalized economy and our iPhones are manufactured in China from components that are really sourced all over the world on the other hand it was only a few decades ago, maybe two, two and a half decades ago, that Dell and HP were mostly making their PCs and desktops, their laptops and desktops from components that they sourced here in North America. So are we going to get back to that or not so much? So I can't
1: speak to every vendor, but I can tell you the vision, both from Intel, but also from what Chipsack and the other contracts that they that the, the DOD and the federal government put out are looking at that future vision where the key technology of, that's driving our infrastructure, the cloud, your desktop computer, and even your mobile device could be manufactured wholly in the in domestic, maybe even domestic and allied nations, so that you could get a locally sourced product without spending a million dollars on an iPhone. That is the vision. That doesn't necessarily mean that there won't still be a couple of the like small microcontrollers that are sourced from other locations, but they'd be known supply chain and they would still be manufactured and and packaged in the U.S. as an example. The other thing to keep in mind is that, and this is something our CEO had talked about in the announcements around his IDM 2.0 strategy. It's when we talk about building factories and capacity in, in Ohio, for example, it's not just to build Intel chips. Part of the whole vision of Chips Act is to be able to open that foundry for the other chip manufacturers so that Apple sure. could build its chips on us. So AMD yeah. and NVIDIA could build their chips on Intel Foundry, again, to take advantage of that domestic capacity versus having to move everything over to Asia. And while there's obviously a government need for having domestic capability and availability, there's also an efficiency in the sense that if the right structure in place it's faster because it's already here and there may and as far as the coordination and the complexity of your supply chain having it local breeds efficiencies in the systems the same time the reason you, a lot of this stuff went overseas is obviously for the cost and so other factors labor costs and so on, and yeah. labor costs and other implications to service those markets and i think what it what the chips act is truly trying to do and this is my humble opinion not necessarily that of intel is that it's going to open the door for bringing that efficiency onshore. and i think that's the aha so in theory, in some future, that you could get an iPhone fully created, a package put together and sold to you from the U.S. source. And that, I think, is the ultimate vision of Chips Act and the other parts of the Science Act and so forth to help enable not just the most state-of-the-art chips, but the broader ecosystem of ecosystem. semiconductors sure. that's necessary to make that happen. It's not going to happen overnight, but that's the where the investments and the breaking ground today is going to get us to.
0: Steve, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wanted to talk about or wanted to say? No, Paul, I think this was a fascinating
1: conversation. Thank you for the key leave behind is that the government is really trying to push the industry towards better supply chain risk management, better security to meet its needs. But it's not trying to do this in a vacuum. It's working with industry so that collectively we raise the bar for every vertical market, not just for the federal government.
0: Steve Oren, Federal Government CTO at Intel, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. We'll do it again. Yes. Thank you very much, Paul, for having me today. You've been listening to an interview with Steve Oren, the Federal CTO and Senior Principal Engineer at Intel Corporation.